So a guy walks into a bar and says, of course, a life of joy and presence is one that I want to live, but I want the full spectrum. I want all the ugly bits. The bartender looks at him and says, well, what does he say? Welcome to the Surf Conscious Podcast. My name is Stefan. I'm a meditation and mindfulness teacher, and recently I decided that all of these principles get tested properly in the grit and grime of service life. You know, stuff like waiting tables. So that's where I've been in the field, learning everything I need to know about how to master ourselves, doing very unglamorous things, old school. I'm bringing back a lot of bones, and I'm speaking with some amazing people. So, listen to find out how this all comes together. So, I'm here with my wife, wondering when she plans on leaving so I can uh, record my intro. Yep, no, she's still here. She's dancing now. That's good. Yeah, no, have yourself uh fill up your tea and just stay a while. Please, don't let me uh don't let me get anything done. Don't let me pursue my dreams and aspirations in life. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, we have an eternity together. But no, you know, we just have to just prolong this moment sitting here doing very little on a Saturday. Presence and mindfulness. Wow. Simple words, profound wisdom. Nothing else needs to be said, I suppose. Okay, I shall proceed as I'm being stared at. <laughs> Lovingly, but irreverently. You know, getting distracted slightly, in which I could never admit to, because then I'll just hear something like, hey, why don't you just be more mindful, mindful face. <laughs> uh, okay, so part one of my interview with Corey Hardiker is the business of the day. And Corey is uh, a podcaster on the Mindfulness of Doom podcast that I was just on, so we got to just trade, you know, guest appearances. And also a teacher of many things, including martial arts, uh, meditations, and principles and lifestyle. He's um, got a super academic, broadly read approach to teaching these principles and also super grounded, practical, and, um, you know, no nonsense. Skeptical, where skepticism is due. You know, it can be an obstacle, but I think Corey applies it to cutting through a lot of the fluff and guff of, you know, the Western appropriation of spiritual practices. So, yeah, I um, had such a great talk with him. It kind of went on so naturally for so long. <laughs> we were drinking tea, you know, getting a little tea drunk and, uh, you know, just feeling feeling the wind blow us in many directions, in many topics around conscious living, I suppose, you know, good and meaningful living, but the authentic type, the real type, you know, the dirty type that I like that perspective. So many modes of life where conscious living can be explored were discussed, and so many ways where we're 
doing it wrong because we're weak and comfort seeking <laughs> as a society. We're also discussed. Um, really, really amazing insights from someone who, I guess, like me, has a really analytical, intellectual approach uh, to life and um, living, you know, consciously and mindfully. Uh, also, very good humored too, um, but in different ways. Also a teacher like me, but in different ways. I would say his approach is more of a whip-your-ass-into-shape approach, whether it's physically, because he does teach self-defense, uh, many different uh, forms of martial arts, and also um, his Zen approach to teaching is kind of a developing mental strength and stability program. You know, are you mindful? Great. Are you meditating? Great. Now, can you maintain that in challenging circumstances someone with Corey's background is very good at uh, working with someone and like training them to be like a zen athlete basically so there is too much that he knows and shares that is valuable that came up in conversation so I just didn't want to edit it down into um, a one show length conversation so this interview shall stand as my inaugural two-part interview, my first one that I wanted to deliver in two parts. So you can take in all of the good, good nutrition of uh, what came up in our talk. And also a lot of the silly things that I just thought were amusing and entertaining. So uh, sit back and enjoy my interview with uh, Corey Hardiker of the Mindfulness of Doom podcast and CoreyDharma.com. All right, so I'm here with Corey Hardiker, the Mindfulness of Doom podcast. Mindfulness of Doom. Corey is particularly uh, geared to being able to penetrate through um, all of this um, overly comfort-seeking, you know, spiritual tendencies of of the West. Uh, I think because obviously of a lot of things, because of his like powerful intellect, his his education. You also teach Krav Maga. Right? Krabaga instructor and some other martial arts? Uh, yeah, I've been doing martial arts for 27 years, and I teach Krav Maga as uh, anti-bullying and kidnapping prevention, and also women's self-defense classes. I also teach Tai Chi and uh, Karate, and uh, and uh, have, I've studied 12 different martial arts. Amazing. Whoa. I think, I think having that martial arts background makes a big difference, too, with just having like um, that warrior sensibility, the finely tuned bullshit detector. And, and I think... I think uh, like it's all about struggle. I mean, I mean, you're going to get uncomfortable over and over and over again, and all of your flaws are going to be laid nakedly bare, and you're just going to have to be fine with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no running away from yourself. That's a good way to put it. You know, yeah, getting, getting into martial arts is a, is a good way to say, hey, you want to spend ten years getting your butt kicked before <laughs> you ever win a single bout? Yeah, <laughs> get into martial arts. It'll humble you. And um, and you studied. You have a degree or master's degree in. Asian studies, right? Yeah, Asian it's. Uh, I actually went to get my PhD in international relations, mm. and uh, got about a year into it before I realized, hey, this is the most depressing thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, Isn't that good? Don't you want to move towards the depressing, at the that, doom? <laughs> at that point, I was not prepared. I was not ready. Um, what was depressing about it? I was in security studies, so every day was studying about how 
other countries try to screw us over mm. to get a leg up on us and how we are much better at playing that game and we screw them over much harder. And like my advisor was the Iranian nuclear advisor to the Reagan administration. Wow. I'm sorry. He was Iranian and he was the nuclear advisor to the Reagan administration. So every day was just like – they have no. They have nukes, and they have nukes, and they have nukes, and here's how we prevent from destroying each other. All of it's negative. There is never any good news in international relations. It's all Cold War territorialism. It's like you're looking at every country as in a Cold War with the other, right, basically. Right, right. And so um, my, my roommate at the time is a former Buddhist monk, uh, Professor William Kolachiko, uh, and he was like, hey, man, you should go study Buddhism. It, that'd be up your alley. I'm like, nah, that's not my thing. That's not my thing. You know, I'm, I'm the languages, modern cultures, uh, politics guy. And then my professor was like, hey, uh, yeah, I don't know if this uh, IR thing is for you. You should go study Buddhism. <laughs> because he was biased. He's the world's foremost scholar on 13th century Buddhism. But eventually I started listening to them. And then I started going to meditation retreats and found on my very first meditation retreat, I attended, without knowing, a death meditation retreat. Death meditation. And Perfect. it was uh, – I, I had thought that my roommate had brought me to a cult, and they made us watch medical autopsy DVDs of corpses in various states of decay and dissection and meditate on death, the unattractiveness of the body, and the impermanence of life. So I basically jumped into the deepest of deep ends – is this like Tibetan Buddhism or something? Or? No, it's it's um, it's Theravada Buddhism. Actually, all really? forms of Buddhism have death meditation, but oh. it's for monks only. They don't teach it to lay people except for this one place <laughs> in Florida, ten minutes outside of Disney World. Jeez, well, that's amazing. <laughs> what? So you got, that's so amazing. Well, so, of course, Disney World. So that's what got me into the whole Doom thing. That's what brought me to mindfulness of Doom was like – You're just baptism by fire. You right? were, just like, you were right. just like honed for this yeah. from day one. Yeah. So that, that got me into it. And so that changed my academic interests from politics to religious studies. Uh, I went to China and lived there for collectively about half a year. I studied in Zen monasteries, shaved my head, and um, – you know, lined up and baked in the sun, and did walking meditation every day, and you know, did a, a you know several weeks of silent meditation with mm. no communication of any kind, not even allowed to make eye contact. And um, now I, now I have a podcast called Mindfulness of Doom, and I teach people about mindfulness and meditation, and I also still teach martial arts. And um, I'm finding that all of these desperate things that used to be separate in my life have kind of come together, and are now starting to form a, you know, a little bit of an art career, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it goes, right? We think we're doing all of this stuff that's unrelated. And then they all just become beautiful little boxes to put the other thing in, you know? Or beautiful seasoning on top of, you know, the the other dish. They yeah. all kind of come together. Yeah, and then um, just one day I was, I was teaching self-defense uh, at a company in... Um, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And then uh, I was like, you know, I'm driving like an hour and a half each day, two hours each day to get to this job that's not paying me very much. I need a new job. And so I quit. And then that day I met 
uh, Kiko Oran of JoJo T fame. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, he offered me a job, and then that led to me being the production manager of JoJo T for a year. Mm-hmm. And that's where I learned my tea lore and learned about the excellent uh, loose-leaf gong fu tea ceremony. And um, him and Michael Ortiz taught me what I know about tea. And that's how I met you. Yeah, totally. And um, Are you going to have those guys on your podcast? I will. You should I, totally have them. I will. Oh, you should get Nanan on here. I'm saving them. That'd be awesome, yeah. They should yeah. all be, yeah. I should have them, indiv- I don't know if I should have them individually as a group. I'm saving them for a rainy day. You should do. You should do all of them individually because it gives you more content. <laughs> it does. I love saying. Uh, I love saying content like a pirate. Content. <laughs> there is something. There is something very, uh, very piratey about it. Yeah. You know, about just taking life and just stealing it. Like yeah. Werner Herzog says about documentaries, we're thieves. You know, going in and grabbing the treasures and and then just like. Exploiting them. <laughs> well, that's what they say about Zen, too. Zen is a finger pointing at the moon. Yes. Don't look at my finger. <laughs> You're just pointing. That's all That's all teachers are. They're professional pointers. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, what are we drinking? This is, this is excellent. This is a, this is a Shangpur. Mm. 11 years old. Uh, wild purple material from Changjajai. So it's a purple material pour, which is... Quite Sorry, unusual. Purple material. Purple material. Is, I've never heard this before. What is this? So in Yunnan, uh, where Pu'er grows, especially there, it happens in other places, but especially there because of its um, tropical climate uh, and its elevation, there is really intense sun exposure. And the Pu'er plant is a particular intelligence to it, as we know, and um, it likes to turn its leaves purple. Is that the royal we? Yes, yes, we. As we... As we know. As we, uh, the tea lovers know. The, um, yeah. I was just, like, assuming you know that, I guess, really, which is, no, my, which is not okay. My, uh, not okay in your my, rigorous Buddhist practice. My, my tea lore is, you know, it's not up to par. It's, right. I, I, you know, I know more than some. Mm-hmm. M- well, more than most, less than some. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't get you very far up the ladder. You know? No, it doesn't. You know, no, you can't. You can only get up a couple of rungs if you speak English. Anyway, all of this information's in Chinese. Like I'd be talking to Nan Nan about something, and I'd ask her a question when I was writing a JoJo training manual, and then she'd go on on Baidu, on on Chinese Google, and she'd find shit that I had could had no idea was out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? I should really understand my limitations and not try and take this any farther than I expect to. Um, and and so it is. It is all. It is one. One, you know, color on the palette for me, but it, it cannot be, um, it cannot be my everything because I'm going to be limited in my knowledge. I find that despite the fact that I'm not very knowledgeable about tea, I find myself showing off all the time about the because when I left JoJo, I they gave me a bunch of their old stock that they were no longer going to sell. So mm-hmm. I went from having like a couple different varieties to like fifty different varieties yeah. of like older tea. Um, and then when people would show up at my house, I'd be like, look at my massive tea collection. What would you like? And then they've never heard of Gong Fu tea ceremony. So I I got to put on my song and dance and kind of, you know, which is, which is the opposite of what you're supposed to do in Gong Fu. The tea is not supposed to be the center of attention, nor is me the server, but I do it because, uh, I like entertaining people and I like being the host and, 
and then you know eventually we get off me back onto you know whatever they're whatever they're doing and I try to remind myself hey Corey don't steal the limelight you know you know let's oh, let's man. make it about them let's oh. let's let's be better at at providing the service of being a good host and I'm I'm good at the entertaining bit and I'm I'm this is one of the reasons I love your show because it reminds me how much farther I have to go to be a better listener and to be a better um, social lubricant for <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate hearing that. I mean, I've I mean, what you're talking about here is, uh, is, is, is vintage, is vintage Stefan, um, especially when I was getting into tea. And I was getting into it when Sabina was already into it, my wife. Uh, and she, um, she discovered this practice, yeah, years before I did and was kind of doing it in a very sort of humble way. She wasn't, you know, like banking information, you know, like, like collecting it, like, um, like they're like little emeralds, you know, like I like to do with knowledge and, you know, info. And, um, and she was presenting it in an extremely, extremely, uh, subtle way where, where she wouldn't, she wasn't trying to like perform at all. She would just like basically just sit everyone down, give them as short of a brief as she could and then serve tea in silence and then just put everything down and say, you know, there you go. <laughs> and, uh, and that's really what it's about. And that's, that's, that's really what it's supposed to be like. And then she started doing them with me and I was there and I was like, I was saying witty things and I was giving them really deep information, um, and telling them about what purple tea is. And to answer your question, it's anthocyanin. That's the purple pigment they use to protect themselves from the sun. And I love telling people shit like that. And, uh, and, and I was, I was using all of my, even when I would serve, I would like use swoopy motions with my hands because my, my background is as a, as a craft bartender. I've, I used to travel the world learning flashier and flashier ways of bartending. I I don't mean to interrupt you here, but I'm going to because I I feel like (laughs) I've wanted to talk to you about this for a while because when I listen to your podcast and I listen to you talk, you've mentioned these kind of things before. You love knowledge and you shouldn't be ashamed of sharing it. Oh, yeah. Especially because you're entertaining about it. And so then it becomes when you are sharing this knowledge, it isn't like super dry. It isn't, um, you know, it, it it's this that this this dichotomy of saying like, okay, the tea service is supposed to not be the, it's not supposed to be the central focus of what's going on. But you are a personality. You are an entertainer, and you were also an academic. At, at least if. You know, in the sense of the term that you are in love with knowledge and all you're really doing is trying to share your passion at the same time as performing this ceremony, which might not be – you might not be doing it in the traditional way, but you're certainly doing it in your way. Yeah. And I feel like you shouldn't tamp down on that. Like I feel like you – like if you want to go the traditional route, you can and I think that you should have that in your back pocket. This is you making something new. This is you making you. Yeah. There there's a there's um I agree with that with most avenues of life, right? Um your your personality is going to be part of it. Who you are is going to be part of it. Don't repress, don't hold yourself back. 
Um, but um, yeah, man, we're all gonna die one day. There's not a lot of time. I'm gonna die. Just Just fucking just fucking ejaculate yourself all over each other. That's right. Enjoy life. Pollock just (laughs) everywhere. Just enjoy life. life. Yeah. I mean, that's what life is. Life is just. It's everything's wiggling, everything's moving, everything's dancing, everything's like, look at me, I'm moving, I'm moving, I'm moving, sure. I'm dead. And then, you know, everything else is, I'm moving, I'm moving, I'm moving, I'm dead. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's all we get. And, like, sometimes our society has all of these social, uh, cultural rules that are implied on us to try to get us to work together better, to make sure, you know, there's a script to follow. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that's why they have, you know... Why, the, why the, the, the knife is supposed to be on the left and the fork is supposed to be on the right because you use the knife with your left and your fork with the right. And, the, you know, the, it gives these rules for people to follow when they don't know what to do. Yeah. But that's great when you're teaching a mass audience. But when you're teaching an individual, it destroys their ability to let themselves out there. And I think that's a travesty. Yeah. Yeah, I th- it's, it is. And it's just, there's an interesting kind of tension here an interesting line to walk um because i also do believe in not really being attached to your personality not being attached to your performative self and i believe in being able to let that go um as willingly as possible in any situation as possible and and i've really been thinking about this more and more in the last couple of years especially the last year with my serve conscious project and i'm getting a lot deeper into um sort of the art of service and the art of being like present. Um, that's like the art of listening where like, you're not performing, you're not speaking, you're just listening. And it's incredible the effect you have on someone when, when it's clear that you're just paying attention to them and hearing what they're saying and acknowledging that you understand them, how much they light up inside versus you giving them new nuggets of information. There's context for giving someone new nuggets of information. Um, I guess lately I've been kind of, trying to understand more and more what is that context where you're giving information and what is that context where you're just being and being open. And tea ceremony is you're just being and being open and letting the present moment and the tea flow through you to others and your performative self is going to get in the way of that. It's going to be there. It's going to be there, but it's going to get in the way of it. That's the Zen tradition. It it can get in the way of it, but at the same time, you are not inseparable from your environment. There is no way for you to not rock the boat in any way like it's like saying i i get and i totally agree with you especially as a personal practice of learning to to flow with what is going on around you instead of guiding or or directing what's going on around you by by you know not listening and just being on your own wavelength of trying to like get in tune with um the uh, with the the environment, the vibe of what's going on in Japanese, there's a, a, a phrase called uh, "kuki yomeru," or uh, they normally say "kuki yomenai," which means you know, an inability to read the air. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, let's say you and your friend are having a conversation. You know, somebody just died, or somebody was sick, or something, and it's kind of a somber mood in the room, and it's clear, even if you just walked in, that something is up. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't steal the show. And then I walk in the room like, hey, guys, how's it going? Hey, it's good to see you again, yeah. buddy. Hey, you want to go to that party? You know, it's just like it ruins the mood because I wasn't paying attention. And that's like you know, the most egregious form of that. Like if you're subtle and aware and conscious of that, you can you can flow smoother through society. And I think that's fantastic. And it's a wonderful way to learn to 
grow as a person. But then I look around and I see so few people have any idea what they're doing. Most people are faking it. And the answer, you know, just, just you do you, you know, mm -hmm. and you go out there and be who you are. And sometimes you're going to step on some toes by mistake. And if you're aware of it, you can, you know, avoid most of those social gaps. But one of my issues with a lot of East Asian thought and culture and, and I lived in Japan for five years. I'm mm. sorry. I lived, in, I lived in Japan for four years and China for half a year. So almost, oh, almost five years total. Um, I was an English teacher in Japan and then a meditation teacher and student in China. And those cultures have drastically influenced me and my worldview. But one of the things I think they err a little too strongly on is, you know, this idea of social cohesion to the point where, like, nobody's personality is allowed to be let out except in the most minute ways mm -hmm. because they're so concerned about stealing the show from other people or stepping on any toes or being rude that they – I hate to say it. They just get boring, mm -hmm. you know, and they do have their own personalities and they do have their own cultures and they do let it out in their own ways. But, like, with tea service, it's like – you, you, it's like trying to make yourself as small as possible so you can match the flow of the environment, but you are also part of that environment. Like, how many times have you done tea service where the other people around you were just did not know how to enjoy a quiet moment, and it was awkward when you were trying to like let them just enjoy it. And they had no training in that. They had no mm -hmm. experience. And so you took the show and said, oh, let me explain this and this and this. And you're kind of telling them how to do it because you're the expert. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, it's interesting. Well, actually, the talking's only in the beginning. And then uh, you spend about an hour at least drinking tea in silence. What's great is, you know, you let the silence do the work. And then they said, and the tea, actually, the tea does the work, too. And, the, and that'll just pull them in. And then they're just, they're left, they're left to take care of things on their own. It's kind of like... They discover their own meditative, mindful self-sufficiency where they can drop in and they, uh, they don't necessarily need guidance. And, um, and I, guess, I guess when serving ceremony in ceremony, and, and, and mind you, a caveat, I don't come from a tradition that is um, anti-ego, actually. Uh, it's kind of excessively pro-ego, which is a whole other conversation. Um, and, um, and lately I've been interested in traditions that talk about how you're getting rid of your ego when you're not really, but that's their word for it. You're getting rid of your over-investment in yourself, you know, over-concern with yourself. And, and I guess when you're serving tea, if you're not concerned with yourself, uh, straight up the tea and the experience is better because the, um, the knowledge goes they're consuming you as well. And so if the ego is, let's call it light, uh, not as engaged, consciousness is bigger. Your perception of the moment is bigger and you're serving that. And that's a bigger experience for them um, because the ego is a very narrow, it's a very like narrow conscious bandwidth, you know, and there's what's beyond that is so much bigger. And so when you're allowing that um, to be what's 
what's uh, facilitating the situation, then it's more powerful. So it's kind of like small ego, big consciousness. Big consciousness is serving. It's that big open state, you know. That doesn't mean no personality, you know. Uh, definitely not. It's like the. Um, it's like there's this dichotomous thing where it sounds dual and it's actually non-dual, mm. uh, where you have this, uh, where like the, the millennial inside of me is saying, "Let yourself out there, make art, go go be you, go go be your butterfly, let yourself let you be you in this extremely short amount of time you have on this world, in this universe. You're a part of it. You know, do I dare eat a peach? Yes, because you're there. You know, do it." And then the other heart, the other part of me, which is heavily influenced by cultures that say, "Be demure, slow down, be quieter, learn patience, learn silence, learn to be subtle, learn the gentle touch," without clod hopping your way through a social situation, but being able to read the room and being able to use just the right amount of pressure. It's like playing guitar. Do you, do you play any instruments? Any stringed instruments? So there's this thing that I play a little bass and this blew my mind when my bass teacher mentioned it to me and I realized that it's a, it's a great metaphor for teaching in other aspects. With your left hand, if you're right-handed, uh, you're, you're fretting the strings and I, I was telling him that like I couldn't I – I was having a hard time getting through shows and through practices because my left hand was hurting. And because like it was getting really tired, and he's like, "Well, well, show me, show me how you're playing." And he would, I would show him, and he's like, "Well, you're clamping your left hand down really hard." I'm like, "Well, yeah, the strings are heavy," and he's like, "Oh, you know what? I figured out what it is. You have an amp that's not loud enough." I was like, "What? How does this have anything to do with it?" He's like, "Well, because the amp isn't loud enough, you're plucking the stringer, the string harder to try to make a louder sound." So you can compete with the band, because you know I was you know twenty and had a really crappy Behringer uh, amp, and or Behringer I don't know how it's pronounced, but the point is, I was compensating by attempting to play harder for not having a loud enough amp. And he says, "Okay, oh, you're plucking the string way too hard. You're fretting the string way too hard. If you just fret, just." gently enough you'll hear a burr in the music because it doesn't it, it vibrates against the fret if you push down just a little bit harder it frets and it makes a nice clear note but every effort you put into pressing harder after that makes no difference in the notes and so what i was doing is i was clamping down pretty hard on the string and tiring my hand out and what i needed to learn was not to press super hard but to press just hard enough because everything past that is wasted energy. And then I started thinking about that as a metaphor for so many different things. You only need just enough and anything past that is wasted effort. And it's kind of like this Eastern thought of like the gentle touch, just enough to get the effect that you're looking for without wasting energy. Exactly. You know, it's the same thing with conversation with tea. And I'm like, that's so amazing. And then on the other hand is like, hey, go you be you. Don't worry about it. Don't 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 clamp down yourself to try to please others, to try to make a a small wave, you know, to 
you know, to be worried about rocking the boat or like get, letting your personality out there because that's what beginners have to do to find their boundaries. You have to push them and you have to grow and that's where you learn, you know, everybody does this. When you learn an instrument, when you uh, first get a job and you do that interview and you try too hard and then they were like, hey, easy there, buddy. Easy there, you know, because you're, you're, you, you don't know. And it, I think it's something that comes with time and practice and wisdom and experience and yeah. and occasionally someone to poke you in the side and go, hey, quit trying so hard. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, that's what this is all about. It's not to create neurosis or repression of who you are. It's, uh, it is about, it's, you know, it's about finessing yourself, you know, and, uh, you know, and I guess my own experience would just be like realizing that living in a sort of undisciplined, sort of like loose cannon sort of way just wasn't working and that I wouldn't be be becoming less myself by figuring out how to pull that back, you know, um, I would, I would just liberate resources to be more myself, you know, because I haven't overextended and, um, I haven't overextended my energy unnecessarily in certain areas. And also, um, I'd expand my sense of self because when you quiet down and listen and pay attention, you realize, you know, yourself is everywhere. And if you're listening to someone, you know, you can, you can feel your sense of self expand if you really listen to yourself. So if there's an opportunity to go beyond this sort of this individual vessel that I'm in, um, I'll take that. And, um, and that will always involve, um, quieting down a bit, you know, uh, always, always involve that. I agree. I, I think it's, it's, it's a skill that is subtle and overlooked in a lot of our society, especially Western society. And it's just so much effort is on success and so little effort is focused on, uh, on doing things with the right kind of process with the right kind of energy, the right kind of intention. Um, and, and, really slowing down and listening and paying attention more. And that's really what mindfulness practice and meditation is all about anyway, is just paying attention. It's not about breathing. It's not about sitting. It's not posture. Like those are things that you do, but it's really the focusing of your attention. And that's really, I guess what we're talking about is just like that, that where do you place your attention? How tightly do you focus it? And, you know, don't, don't make yourself self-conscious by like placing the attention on you and how you are performing. Get rid of the you part of it and just focus on the doing. And if what you're doing is like, you know, tea service or, or, you know, being a server or being a teacher or whatever, it's like focus on the doing of that thing and you will do it better and you will be more receptive to what's going on and you're listening more instead of, Focusing on, like you said, like the ego mind, the the me, me, me. Look at me entertain. Look at me be interesting. Look at my podcast. It's great. You know. Yeah. By the way, you should su- subscribe to Mindfulness of Doom. It's you everywhere. should. Oh, we're gonna. Oh, we're gonna get. We're, you're gonna get some generous plugs. You're gonna paint paint my podcast with plugs. All you want. I want people listening to this podcast. Um. So yeah, something came to me interestingly because I, I, I was listening to uh, just 
So, listening to some great stuff from the Vajrayana tradition. I just, I'm just loving Tibetan Buddhism right now. And I'm thinking about Tibetan Buddhist teachers or any of those like, yeah, let's say the Tibetan ones because they're quite, they're quite terrifying. And, um, and I think about like, okay, let's, let's then pull back to where we're at right now versus where they're at. Okay, so where are we when we're being mindful and observing ourselves? You know, and, and maybe pulling back in some areas. We're looking at how like maybe... Maybe we're becoming more able to notice when we've off-put someone or maybe when we've made them silent and kind of go within because we're like being overbearing, maybe, you know, being intellectually intimidating and we see them pull back and we think, oh, I don't want to do that. And we think, I don't want them to, to feel that way around me. Um, and something will trigger in us where we, we, we check ourselves, but it's always good to know what we're checking and why. If we're just saying like, I don't want them to do that because I just want everyone to like me, that's wrong, right? But... We might check ourselves and say, I don't want them to do that because I want people to feel free and open and able to express themselves around me as well. Then, aha, then you've checked something that's right. You've got to like check the checker too. And I think about like the, the teachers uh, in Vajrayana Buddhism and let's say they're like someone that doesn't have so much of like an, you know, a big egoic cocoon around them. They're, they're, their ego is like wide open, right? Um, are they Are they themselves? Fuck yeah, they are. Those people are really seriously individual people and they're very mindful and they're very aware of what they're doing except they'll do something someone doesn't like it uh, but they're deliberately doing something someone doesn't like it's all on purpose they want them to get agitated because they want to they want to break them out of their own you know shell their own boundaries so it's just all about intentionality are you getting the results you want? These people are not being liked. These people are really just acting fearlessly without having to check themselves because they know exactly what they're doing and why. Right. You know, that's the difference of, of like the level of mindfulness. Well, this, this brings up something that um, since you, you know, talked about the difference between the, the Vajrayanists, uh, the Tibetan Buddhists versus like, you know, modern day mindfulness, Western practice. And I find that, uh, this this is the thing. This is like a big frustration for me as a mindfulness teacher, is that my academic training doesn't come into play as often as as I would like. And I would point out to the listeners that the reason that it's different is because those Vajrayana monks are not just practicing mindfulness, which is only one of the eightfold path. They are also practicing the other seven parts of the path which get totally left out of the conversation in Western practice. It's kind of like yoga. When you go to a yoga studio, everyone's doing the asanas. They're doing the postures. But that is only, you know, one of the eight limbs of yoga. Where are the other seven? Like, the all of the love is going to this one thing. And so the conversation gets a little, it, it's so much broader than that. So in the with the Vajrayanas, like they're also the right medi- right mindfulness is only one of them. There's also right concentration, which would be your meditation, your right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Like all of these things are components of that path. Just being mindful isn't enough. It's a skill that you can uh, apply to any parts of your life, and you can make yourself really, really uh, do some self-improvement, do some ego death, make yourself like 
into a better person, into a more you, you, just doing mindfulness. But without the others, you're just playing at it. Because, for example, if you don't have the right livelihood, you know, if you make weapons for a living, you know, you make bombs, great. <laughs> doesn't matter how mindful you are, you're still adding misery to the world. You're still hurting people. Like, it's really important, but it doesn't get looked at much because it's so easy to sweep under the rug. Having the right thought, the right speech. In the monasteries in, Buddha, in, in China, and I, don't, I can't speak for Vajrayana Buddhism as much because most of my training is in, uh, is in Mahayana and Theravada. Um, as you said, they're a terrifying bunch, uh, the Tibetans. It's because they have they each have their own canon of texts in which they they believe and write in. And Theravada Buddhism, it's about a bookcase. So if you imagine a standard bookcase in a home with like five to six layers of shelving, all of those full, that's the Theravada canon. The Mahayana Mahayana Buddhists also have a very large canon. It's probably two or three times that. The Vajrayanists include both of those canons plus their own into their written corpus. And it's so when you say it's terrifying, it is frightening to really get to know like what all the things that they believe and study. So it's, that's why it's so hard and fascinating as an academic to, to study them. Uh, so I, I'm much less knowledgeable about their worldview, but, um, can't uh just negate the rest of it which i'm not saying that you are but uh so when you practice mindfulness if you're not also thinking about the right speech and they're saying oh make sure you're like when you go to the monasteries in china the you you know you take these precepts of how you're supposed to live and their rules of conduct and most of you without even having ever been in a monastery, will probably know what they are. It's quite simple. Hey, don't kill stuff. Don't steal stuff. Uh, you know, don't smoke drugs, okay? <laughs> you know, um, don't lie. But when you really look at the translations of the rules, they're far more encompassing than just don't. It's not don't steal. It's refrain from taking things that were not given. Which means if there's a bowl of M&Ms there and it's clearly available for anyone to take, you're not allowed to take it unless you were offered it. It would not be stealing to take one, but you were not offered it. So it's far more inclusive. Also, uh, you know, it's not don't lie. The rule is actually refrain. Uh, I, I, I undertake the precept to not speak false truths. So there's ways to lie with the truth. There's ways to speak the truth and still mislead people. You are not even allowed to do that when you're in the monastery. It's way more of a practice. That, that practice is, is like really intent on the right speech. It makes you think about what you are saying. You know, The Western idea would say it makes you more mindful about what you're saying, but it's actually a different part of the practice. And so those gurus, those teachers, those um, ideally the you know the the people who are teaching these things, hopefully they are practicing all of these other limbs of the system as well. And in my in Western practice, those just don't exist. Yeah. They, don't, they don't get talked about. They get no love. 
the question is always, you know, what is there room for in this life? Because, you know, people can practice all these limbs when, um, when they're in sort of like, when they're able to always just be in training and not really, they don't have, they don't have game day to worry about. They don't have, they don't have an actual, you know, like the demands of Western life to live. Um, not easily a cop out and has led to people, you know, um, appropriating really incomplete practices. And then in my tradition, thinking they have everything they need, which is really, really wrong, uh, which I, which I debated them for a long time thinking like, you guys do not, you guys have a meditation practice. That's really good. Um, it's, it's really, you really need to be humble and know that it's not going to take you to the highest levels of consciousness. You don't even know what those look like. You never will in your lifetime, unless you're practicing as rigorously as these other people are. You think you've got the antidote to that, to practicing rigorously? No, you just have one that fits nicely into your life. And, and that's the deception that, that they self deception. They allowed um, themselves to fall into because um, a lot of traditions are, are, are sold now as like, Use this. Don't change anything. Use this. And and it's wise because if you're practicing properly and you are someone of integrity, that practice is going to make you re-examine your life and change the shit that you need to change. So it's like, yeah, sure, just be mindful. Be mindful. Just that's all you got to do is pay attention. Keep selling fucking weapons. Keep uh, keep pimping. You know, keep like keep keep slapping a hoe. When she's when she's not when she's not bringing yeah. in the money, keep fucking and drugging. Yeah, keep keep it keep at it. Keep being you, and and it's and it's always like and it's sneaky because it's like. But once you start paying attention, you're probably going to rethink these things. Hopefully, um, however, some just like give themselves permission to keep doing it because now they're spiritual and everything they do is perfect and beautiful. Right. But a lot of the times, if you're really paying attention, I don't remember which episode it was of yours. But I, I, I want to bring up something that you said on a previous podcast and uh, suggest that perhaps you look farther into this. You were talking about relationships and you were talking about teachers and their relationships with their students. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was it was it was great. And I really loved hearing you rant about it. Um, <laughs> have you ever heard of the book, The Ethical Slut? I think I've heard of it. Yeah. It's a book about polyamory. Oh, yeah. And I, I am I am a monogamist. However, that book made me a better partner and a better understander of relationships as a whole mm-hmm. and how love works. And it just blew my mind. And like I totally agree with you that, you know, teachers should not sleep with their students. Yeah. It's a, it's it's not a good idea, okay? You know, yeah. it's it, it it is crossing a line, but that idea of being mindful in relationships and like how you how you comport yourself with other partners uh, of, of any type, whether mm-hmm. they be, um, you know, a teacher, student, or, uh, you know, a romantic uh, with several partners or just one partner, uh, and just making sure that the communication is there. Because it's, it's really about the, – the book talked a lot about being um, open and honest in your communication and being mindful of how other people re- are receptive to your behavior, but then also like not taking responsibility for other people's hangups. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And I think, and I'm a monogamist as well. I'm going to say that loudly so my wife can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've never had the opportunity not to be. 
So, uh, so to be totally honest, like if given the opportunity, if a couple came up to me and said, "Hey, you know, would you, uh, you know, would you like to join us?" I, I, I would consider it. Right. But it's not not because I hadn't said. It's just I've never had the opportunity. Right. I've never even dated two people at the same time. <laughs> like, there's all this this image in society and. TVs and movies and stuff where they're like they're dating several people and mm-hmm. choosing between one or the other. And yeah, like, yeah. Like, what kind of lives of luxury and love lives are you guys having? It's never even occurred to me. Like, yeah, yeah. It's funny saying one's a, a monogamist, but it's is is it? Um, it's not like it's by choice. It's just it's it's often incidental. You know? Right, it's right. Like... And the assumption is is that it's the standard. Or yeah, that it's yeah. that's the way everybody is. So we just do it like that. But that's actually not true. Mm-hmm. Think about all those, like, the. I think what's the statistic is like 60, 30 to 60% of married couples end up cheating on each other. Mm-hmm. And everybody, most people just say, oh, you shouldn't cheat. That's so bad. That's terrible. You know, mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, it's terrible to hurt people intentionally. Mm-hmm. But what if your sexual preference is not actually monogamous and you are forced into a monogamous relationship yeah. because you didn't know that you were poly? Mm-hmm. And then the cheating becomes... Like, yeah, it's still bad to hurt people's feelings, but you were really just doing what nature called you to do. Like, you yeah. wouldn't make fun of somebody for being gay because it wasn't their choice. You yeah. just, that's who they are. And if you believe, not just believe, but if you're one of those people who has, like, can share love as if it's not a limited resource where like loving several people doesn't mean you love any one of them less. It's like saying to your children, you know, like, well, there's three of you and I can only have so much love and I've got to, no, you love all of them, you know? Yeah. That's a really, that's a really interesting philosophical debate, you know, uh, because I think, um, there's an interesting book right now. Sabina and I are reading called transformation through intimacy by Robert Augustus masters. It's about making a monogamous relationship, your monastery. And if you do it properly, it's so deeply satisfying. Your, your, your partner is literally your spiritual partner where like the idea of even non non monogamous thoughts are, are not even, are, are not even of interest because like, that's, that's it. That's, that's all that that's all it needs to be. And, and I think about that. And I actually also think about how people are spiritually polyamorous, as in polyamorous with spiritual practices. They dabble. Yeah, they so do something. Be, they get bored. They do something. It polyamorous. It would be poly, like, I don't know. What's the, what's the Greek poly for de- spiritual? Polydevotional. Yeah, polythe- polydevotional. No, no, I don't know what it is. Like, let's say it's that. You know, we like yeah. to dabble because rather than just like really actually staying with something and getting deep into it and realizing that that is like, you know, um, the vessel through which you could experience all of the stuff you're trying to experience through this collection of things. But people always think poly uh, or like love is about variety. You know, it's about having lots of different things, uh, lots of different experiences uh, rather than it being uh, something that you can just literally have within you. Like, like all encompassing love doesn't mean like universal love doesn't mean having lots of partners as in like, I have 10 partners, therefore I've loved 10 times as much as this person with one partners. Universal love means you love 
the person in the checkout line just as much as everyone else. Right. It's not romantic. It's just literally like love that stretches out. So just having one partner that you're devoting yourself to and you don't have to go bouncing from experience to experience means you have, you have a path that you're fulfilled by. And actually that monogamous relationship is the practice ground, is the training ground for the universal love that you can take into loving your barber, not sexually or romantically taking into loving, you know, a homeless person. And I I would say that all the way up until that point where you said not sexually or romantically and say, maybe that too. Maybe that too. I mean, maybe that too. As as long as you've had the communication with your partner and you're both under under agreement about, you know, I mean, it, it complicates things drastically past that point. And I, and I'm sure there's plenty of people who have no interest in even attempting it. Uh, and I don't really have any interest in attempting it myself. I just really like the idea of like, you know, hey man, love who you love and, sure, you know, sure. but it's like you said, go back with the, the poly spirituality is like, it's like that phrase, um, spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. It's because like, you know, I didn't go to church when I was a kid. My parents took me to church. Yeah. <laughs> like I had no choice in the matter. Uh, and it wasn't – it was like – it was given to me. Um, and then later as an adult realizing there were so many options. And then even nowadays when somebody asks me, are you Buddhist? Because I wear the Buddhist beads and I'm a meditation teacher. And I, I basically say um, the short answer is yes. The long answer is no. Because it's hard to, it's hard to explain. Like – I could have gotten my Buddhism card. Like they they give you a little literal card in China in the monastery if you it's it's nice. And they give you a Buddhist name and everything, you know, at the at the temple that we were at. Um but I didn't do it because as much as it speaks to me, it still isn't quite accurate to how my worldview is. And then when I when I studied Zen, it was the same thing. It was like, "Oh man, this is great, but there's still some things that I find issue with." And then now I've gotten to the point where I've taken a little bit from Christianity, uh, a little bit from, you know, a lot from Zen, a lot from Buddhism, uh, you know, Hindu spiritual cultures. And, and I read so much and I read a lot of the texts, like the original texts. You know, I've read the Bhagavad Gita. You know, I've read, um, you know, a lot of the sutras and you know, the things in their original form, um, some translated, some not. And then it, it's to the point where now I can't read like – I can't read Eckhart Tolle because it's like he's talking about something that I'm like, oh, no, you're, you, you got it. No, you've missed. No, you, ah, oh, it's too popular. Ah, oh, I can't. Uh. It's great. Like he's done a lot to get the word out, but it doesn't speak to me anymore because like I read the things that he read and you know, I just don't like his presentation style of, of the knowledge that he's getting out there. He's getting out good knowledge, but so I, I can't say what religion I am because none of the religions are quite accurate enough. And so I'm left with spiritual but not religious. Yeah, but I'm highly spiritual, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I know. And you've got it. At a certain point, and actually... I'm a spiritual slut. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been... Uh, like spiritually slutty as well. And I think, and I think it's, mm, it's become in a healthy way. It's become healthier now, I think, because there, there's healthy and there's not healthy. 
uh, not healthy is like desperately looking for something that is the answer. You know, it is, it is your ultimate solution. Uh, that would be unhealthy. Healthier would be like, um, finding joy in different perspectives on that truth that you're already really feeling, um, a certain intimacy with that, a certain wisdom that's already within you finding, having a more prismatic relationship to it where it can take all these different forms and, um, and enjoying that. And also learning about all these different traditions so that you can see a certain unity, even though obviously they have different priorities. They have much different, uh, focuses that come from different cultural and social mores and they're, which are definitely woven in there. Understanding that is really valuable and, and seeing them play out in different ways is really valuable. And, um, I think I just actually, I think back to, um, what's his name? Neem Karoli Baba, who is uh, Ram Dass's teacher. Um, you know, Ram Dass experienced what he described as a certain amount of enlightenment or awakening with him. And then he said, what's next? Where do I go? Neem Karoli. Neem Karoli is from a yogic tradition. Actually, um, he's like a, it was a, it's like some kind of siddha. I forget what it was, but it's like a really powerful, you know, really rigorous tradition. Where do I go next? He goes, go hang out with some Buddhists, you know? So you can, ex- <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, wow. D- dabbling isn't just a millennial thing, but it's not, but in that context, it's not really dabbling. It's just, it's finding, it's finding the same truths through different lenses. I mean, that's exactly what the Buddha did as he yeah. went and taught. Uh, he went and experienced many different teachers before mm-hmm. he reached his own enlightenment. And um, each one of them had something to offer him. Uh, it's like that quote. Oh, God, I can't remember. I, I think it's Ralph Waldo Emerson. I could be wrong. But he said, uh, I cannot remember all of the books that I've read any more than I can remember all the meals that I've eaten. Mm-hmm. But each one of them has made me. Yeah. And it's the same thing with like religious experiences. It's just like get out there and and go explore. Uh, I had a guest on my podcast, uh, Rosemary Pritzker, who is also a po- who also has a podcast called A Show of Hearts, mm-hmm. and she used a term that I really liked. She said spiritually shopping, and she was yeah. like, "It's like when you are looking at not just spiritually seeking. Seeking is kind of like." Oh yeah, I'm really looking out for the next thing, you know, whenever it comes around, but spiritually shopping made me think like, okay, I'm intentionally looking for the next thing. Yeah. Uh I I'm looking to buy. Mm-hmm. And um you know, being an autodidactic, so to speak, a, a self-taught person, uh still requires you to go out and find exposure to ideas. Uh and going to teachers, going to gurus, uh, going to classes or talking to people, I think is super useful, but keep in the back of your mind that these people are, that the path that's set out before you has been bushwhacked already. And it makes it easier to follow that path. But as we spoke about earlier, the struggle, the difficulty, the hardship is the better, is the, is a good teacher. And if you end up bushwhacking your own path, you will learn more. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think especially, um, you know, learning, learning to walk many paths and learning to see what's out there is super, super useful. Yeah. And that path, I mean, you know, and then you actually get better at finding teachers and wisdom in places where there isn't even any proposed teacher or wisdom. Okay. Hmm. Now I am, 
now my spiritual temple is a restaurant where I'm slinging curries, you know? Yeah. Now it's like whatever, you know? Now it could be anywhere. And then and then knowing that we don't necessarily well, excuse me. We don't necessarily have to be studying high concepts uh, to be, you know, learning spiritually. And in fact, in Buddhist temples, that's why they have you sweeping and doing horrible, unsexy work. Because they're like, that's where the magic is. You don't have to come to the fucking lectures. Yeah. Sweep, motherfucker. Yeah, you, Sweep. You don't have to climb a mountain and go to China to find a teacher. Yeah. He's right here in Miami. His name is Corey. <laughs> <laughs> Corey the teacher. Let's talk about Corey the teacher now. Okay. And Corey uh, as a... Um, you know, content creator as an educator, um, the the work you're doing uh, with mindfulness of doom is embracing that struggle, is embracing uh, the dirty bits and all of the lingering, shrieking shadows within us that often we want to vault over or say that we're so totally beyond because we're practicing mindfulness or meditation. But uh, you're all about having a party with those things. Our, our show was originally supposed to be scripted. Uh, and if you listen back to the, the first few episodes, which are terrible, um, <laughs> all of the conversations that are had in those episodes were actually repeat conversations. We had actually sit down and have uh, planned out conversations ahead of time. Right. So what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about this. We're going to bring up this. We're going to bring up this. We'll do it in this order. Okay, yeah. now hit record. Now let's do it. And we would have those conversations a second time. And they just weren't coming off as natural. They were late night TV. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have it's all the, planned. Um, you sit down. You you lay it out, and you're like, "We're going to talk about this. Then we're going to talk about this. Then we're going to talk about that." Which yeah. is, um, I don't know if you ever watched um, the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. They they always joke about that the pre interview being useless because he just goes off script. He just talks. He just shoots the shit about whatever. Um, and and, and I, I ended up really liking that uh, when watching interviews there because he mm-hmm. would just. Nobody cares. You know, nobody wants to hear these actors like, you know, tell their scripted thing about the movie. They just want to like, hey, how you doing? Where's your head at? You know? Yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, that's why I ask in my intake form. Oh, I'm gonna bring up your intake form actually because it's great. But that's why I ask in my intake form what what questions do you wish you were asked more? You know, like what am I gonna what am I gonna like bring out of you conversation wise that others aren't? You know. If they're going to look for this on YouTube or iTunes, you know, they're going to, I want them to find something they haven't found before from this person. You know? Right, right. Obviously, the MO stuff is like yeah. perfunctory. Get it out, you know? Talk about your mission. But you guys are really great with just like you have guests on and now you have shit you throw at them that no one's thrown at them before. Yeah. No one's <laughs> asked them if they're afraid of death before. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the best thing about uh, – Having a, a having a, a inherently negative bias in the podcast world because when the, and you know the show is called Mindfulness of Doom for a reason it's it's supposed to be like hey let's talk about the dark things let's talk about your anxieties your doubts your fears what holds you back from being the person that you need to be and um, but we we still are joking and having a great time the, the whole time but there's so many podcasts out there that um that are the good vibes only show. And it's like, oh, mindfulness is so much more than that. It's about all of it. You know, it's about the negative and the positive. It's about the neutral. It's about the boring. It's just about the paying attention. And uh, mostly our, oh, thank you, sir. Mostly our topics 
come up naturally simply because by process of elimination of saying, okay, what are other people not doing? Well, other people are not asking their guests, what holds you back from being the person that you need to be? And it, it, it leads to better conversations, I think, than, you know, hey, how are you? What are you working on? Tell me your story that you've finally crafted to tell other people to present your life as this well-put-together thing. No, we want to crack that shell. We yeah. want to get like beyond that and have them tell us something real. Not mm-hmm. that those other things aren't real. They're just everyone else is doing it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like here. Yeah, tell me some shit that you can, that I can like read on your website copy. Like, what's the point of that? You right. Know? I've yeah, got yeah. like you. You've told. You've got that. You're, you're telling me story three, six, nine, and eleven. You know. Oh, that's true. That's <laughs> yeah, true. you know, like people. People have because anyone that has a has like a thing, a project, a business, they have set stories. Mm-hmm. They have a set portfolio of things that kind of communicate. You know, their whole brand, and so, and. And a lot of the times I just hear it reworded over and over again. And it's almost said verbatim on different interviews. So, yeah, I love that you guys are cracking through that. We try. We try. Um, but we, we quickly got rid of the scripted idea. Um, originally, the idea for the podcast was supposed to be an edutainment show, kind of in the style of YouTube uh, video essayists, where it was um, – there was still going to be the humor and there was still going to be some um, – some improvisation, but uh, we wanted it to be more educational, uh, informative. And then we found that, like, when we were teaching at our listeners, it just felt wrong. Yeah, yeah. And our it, it just felt to, so stilted. And then our our interactions with each other became so much more natural, and it was so much easier to record. It was so much easier to edit. And it was just way more fun for the guests when we started having guests every episode. Yeah. Because yeah. in the beginning, it was just Brian and I. People want you fumbling along with them, right? They want you – because, like, they want to hear you, like, debating each other, you know, and, and, and not really able to, like, be sure or reach an agreement, you know. And, uh, you know, they want to see you learning along with them. They want to see – they don't want you just saying, like, here I am in this position. I'm the one who knows all the shit. Now it will flow downwards into you. Right. You know, I just I think, yeah, people just want like a, a real person who's vulnerable and uh, and cheeky and uh, sometimes clumsy, even though you guys speak very fluidly. Um, you know, other other people, um, you know, other people might not. They might trip over their words and stuff. And I think people like that, you know. Well, it, it's all a clever ruse because <laughs> we edit out the ums yeah, and yeah. the pauses and the sounds <laughs> out of our podcast. Oh, those sounds are so good. Let's do one now. so good oh delicious God. it's it's terrible for me um <laughs> because as a as a public speaker like I, i'm constantly in front of people i'm a you know i'm a teacher of many things and i have to you know there's a performance to it you you get yeah. up there and you um are acting the role of authority mm-hmm. and uh like what how alan watts says it, you have the authority because you are at the front of the room mm-hmm. and most people give you that authority simply because they think that, oh, he's standing at the front of the room. He's, he must have something important to say. Mm-hmm. God forbid you speak out and ruin their finely crafted show. But as a teacher, you kind of need to create a little bit of a narrative to draw people in. I think good teachers do anyway. Um, and then as a, as a podcaster, I know that I'm going to edit. 
so I uh, I uh, do this and uh, and I and I really think about what I want to say to say it the way to have it come out as well thought out and intentional as possible. And then when you cut out the edits, the YouTube style, the fast editing, keeping it all tight, it makes you sound so much more intelligent. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's not yeah. natural, but it's a lot easier to listen to. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that being said, I. I absolutely love your podcast. Oh, thank you. Like, I haven't listened to every episode, but I the whole idea of it just – it made so much sense when I heard that you were doing it. And you you specifically, beyond anyone else, it just makes – it just – it screams you. Oh, and, wow. And, um, you know, in, in a very polite screaming level. You know, you're not <laughs> over the top. You're very, you know – uh, you know, intentional with it, and uh, the whole concept of it is just phenomenal. And I'm, I'm very glad to be here and to share this with you. Thanks, man. Wow, I appreciate. I really appreciate hearing. I'm that. a fan. Thanks, man. I'm, I'm going to try not to gush at you too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a fan too, and uh, and I'm loving what you're doing. You know, we're taking both of us are aligned here in taking um, all of this stuff that's become, you know, all the rage. You know, all of these big lofty practices and ideas, all of these, you know, gushy, twinkling concepts that are almost grotesquely and intimidatingly twinkly for a lot of people. And we're putting them in containers that uh, are a little more raw and gritty and real, I think. And and they're smaller containers sometimes. And um, I think it allows, allows us to look at these things for what they really are and allows us to look at life for what it really is um, while still celebrating it. And that's what your podcast does really well too, because um, you, um, your, your podcast sounds like it's like pessimistic and doomy and like, Oh, we're all going to die. But like a lot of the time it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite uplifting and inspiring. And the people you have on there are uplifting and inspiring. You just, you don't flinch at the stuff that's not, and it makes all the difference. And I think it makes the inspiring stuff that much more earned and that much like more like potentially potent Thank sounding. You. Yeah. Actually I had a listener talking to me today about an episode that they refused to listen to because they were worried about it. We, they, we had a episode 34 was a uh, pineal gland self-surgery with Kanal Johan. <laughs> it's a great name. It's intense. But... And, um, well, you know, he's a, he's a med student about yeah, to be yeah. a doctor and, you know, in the mindfulness community, you know, the pineal gland is kind of a trigger word. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a it's a um it's, it's a dog whistle term for yeah. a lot of people who think that the pineal gland has something to do with their awakening process, and and it's like, oh, what an excellent time to show the you know somebody a meditator, uh, a meditation teacher, a mindfulness coach, and a doctor mm-hmm. to you know kind of take a stab at that. And in the, in the process of it, he told this great story about a Russian doctor who, um, performed his own appendectomy, uh, and had to cut out his own appendix in Antarctica (laughs) because he was the only one qualified to do so when he realized he had appendicitis. Amazing. And he survived because, and, and anyway, the point is we, we got really graphic with the story and the listener was like, she didn't want to hear it. (laughs) <laughs> and she was like, oh, I want you to recommend a, a story to me. Recommend one of your podcasts. So I was like, oh, episode 34 for sure. And she's like, but it's so it's so dark. I'm scared <laughs> to watch it. And I was like, just just watch it. Just, it's, it's great. It's fantastic. And it, it's one of our funniest episodes. 
I'm very proud of it. Um, and uh, it's it's one of the ones I recommend to people. But uh, that, along with our business card, it ends up – I hand it to people and they one of two reactions happens. Either they look at it and they go, oh, my God, that's really funny. Mm-hmm. And they really love it. And they're like, oh, this design is fantastic. Who do this? I'm like, oh, Brian Brian did it. You know, mm-hmm. our, my, my podcast partner, he, he designed this. We designed our own – he designed all this – the t-shirts he designed the website everything um he's he's a fantastic artist mm-hmm. um and then the second option is they look at it and they go oh that's and they're like these are the soccer moms who don't allow their children to curse even though they're like 17 years old yeah <laughs> like they're the ones who are so concerned with proper with the way things look and how they're presented and because our logo has the Grim Reaper meditating, mm-hmm. even though it's a bright yellow card, they, they think, oh, oh, that's even the hinting at darkness is upsetting for them. Yeah. And those are the people that are never going to listen to our show anyway. But if they did, they'd find out that, oh, I, like you said, it's actually um, we try to be uplifting about it. It's like, hey, guys, I got a uh, bad news for you. You're all going to die. <laughs> and there's not a lot of time left. So. Let's cut the small talk and get to the important things. Yeah, yeah. I love it. And, and it's funny because, um, like, people that have at least appropriated, you know, modern spirituality, you know, all these, like, ancient modalities, um, you know, it's a fact you're all too familiar with that they've appropriated fragmented versions of them. They've di- they've uh, bleached out all the, the, you know, uglier bits of it or at least acknowledged the... Um, the ugliness of life and, and, and really they just used it as a ejector seat into a increasingly comfortable Western life. It's just a way to make their Western civilized life even more comfortable. Uh, but like traditionally these things were designed to make us even more com- uncomfortable and actually um, to make us fully reconcile with and actually take pleasure in discomfort like the tantric traditions you oh, know yeah keep eating rotten fish until you see the absolute beauty in it right you know right. and people don't want to eat rotten fish no more yeah that? well i mean you know that's how leonardo dicaprio got his oscar you know mm-hmm. he had to eat fish guts really for what movie uh i don't remember i, I just remember I, I remember somebody commenting on it on youtube and they were like oh that's what that's the movie he got the oscar for was Eating fish guts, yeah. Yeah, for eating, you know. Is it the Revenant? I haven't seen the Revenant. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure which one it is. So mm. if it's wrong, don't you know? Don't take my word for it. <laughs> um, but no, you're right. Like I think that whole idea of uh, comfort being the luxury, being the thing that we all want in life is uh, at at best it's it's lying to yourself, and at worst it's just downright disingenuous. Uh, about presenting this life of being so comfortable that the absence of pain, the absence of suffering, the absence of um, hardship is the ideal, and that's what people go for. They're, they want that big job with you know the you know the six figure salary, and they want the job, they want the big house, and they want to be able to take all the vacations they want, but. You know, wanting things is so ubiquitous, it's meaningless. And most people, what most people want is to have a pain-free existence. But if if you take two seconds to look at it, all of the most important 
moments in your life involved pain. They involved some sort of struggle. And those are the things that uh, helped us the most. Those are the things that, that really taught us to grow and to be better people. Um, I have a quote that I would like to share, if you don't mind. Please, please. Uh, let's see. It's from an author named Jim Butcher, and he writes a, a fantasy series about a private investigator who uh, investigates like werewolves and vampires and demons and stuff. And uh, so it's like a, you know it's you know private gumshoe kind of schlock story reading, but he also happens to be a wizard, <laughs> and so it, you know it's it's over the top, but it is fantastic, and it's this huge like twenty book series. And the the farther you get into it, the deeper and deeper it gets. But this quote is from one of it's from the book White Knight, and uh, I found this to speak so much truth to me um, that I like to share it whenever I have the opportunity. And now that I'm on someone else's podcast, I can do so. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> what we hadn't known about back then was pain. Sure, we'd face some things as children that a lot of kids don't. We still hadn't learned, though, that growing up is all about getting hurt and then getting over it. You hurt, you recover, you move on. Odds are pretty good that you're just going to get hurt again. But each time you learn something, each time you come out a little stronger, and at some point you realize that there are more flavors of pain than coffee. There's the little empty pain of leaving something behind, graduating, taking the next step forward, walking out of something familiar and safe into the unknown. There's the big whirling pain of life, upending all of your plans and expectations. There's the sharp little pains of failure, and the more obscure aches of successes that didn't give you what they thought, what you thought that they would. There are the vicious stabbing pains of hopes being torn up, the sweet little pains of finding others and giving them your love, and taking joy in their life as they grow and learn. There's the steady pain of empathy that you shrug off so you can stand behind. Be- stand beside a wounded friend and help them bear their burdens. And if you're very, very lucky, there are a few blazing hot little pains you feel when you realize that you are standing in a moment of utter perfection, an instant of triumph or happiness or mirth, which at the same time cannot possibly last and yet will remain with you for your entire life. Everyone is down on pain because they forget something important about it. Pain is for the living. Only the dead don't feel it. Pain is a part of life, sometimes in a big way, sometimes it isn't. But either way, it's a part of the big puzzle, the deep music, the great game. Pain does two things. It teaches you, tells you that you're alive, and then passes away and leaves you changed. It leaves you wiser sometimes. Sometimes it leaves you stronger. But either way, pain leaves its mark, and everything important that will ever happen to you in your life is going to involve it in one degree or another. Awesome. Awesome. Whoa. Boom diggity. Yeah. Good find. Good find in an unlikely place. Which, what's better than that? Finding like what sounds like Eastern wisdom in um, a place that where it's not trying to be. Uh, like that, you know, not trying to be a yoga teacher with an Instagram profile, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> Oh my God, this is Miami. There's a billion of those. And it's actually, it's peppered with, uh, that stoicism, you know, that like, um, which I think is a good antidote to a lot of, um, I think overly invested in the positive woo woo kind of stuff. Um, and, um, and I also, I even think about, um, uh, 
what's his name, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. He's an economist. Ooh. He's an economist. Not at all. Not I've a, heard of this. Not a, not a spiritual proposition in anything he says. But it's all about... So he looks at different like things and how they function in a system. So there's, um, you know, you can be strong, you can be resilient, right? Which means if you give me like struggle, if you give me pain, I won't break, right? Um, I will remain steady and stable. But like that's not really taking advantage of life at all. That's just simply letting things bounce off of you. Um, anti-fragile means you thrive in those environments, right? Anti-fragile says give me chaos. Yeah. Give me, give me, um, challenge, give me intensity and I will get knocked around. I'll get bumped and bruised, but my like, you know, like nano armor will like, <laughs> will like, uh, will sublimate that into something useful basically. Yeah. Right. And so, um, and that book, that book, uh, elaborates that on that even more beautifully and poetically than I could have even there. But, um, but that's, that's that whole idea of like. Um, you're, you're really doing all of this not to, if you're, you know, if you have a spiritual practices of some sort, um, you're doing it to be able to meet these situations, um, with gusto rather than, uh, create this sort of like container around you. Yeah. The smaller, the more you stay inside your comfort zone, the smaller it gets. And I feel like there's this, um, constant process of shrinking of uh, entropy as you know you have to build something up but it's going to just naturally crumble if you don't maintain it and your comfort zone is one of those things where the longer you stay inside of it it's just going to get smaller and smaller until your walls are so tight around you that every minor disturbance is a huge shock to your world the only way to grow your comfort zone is to step out of it and that involves some sort of uncomfortableness that might be pain that might be awkwardness it might be um it, it might be fear or loneliness you know the the people who learn the most the people who i admire the most the people who you admire most all the teachers all of the, all of the people that have ever come before you who you have admired you have admired them because of their ability to weather hardship Somebody is a great teacher because they put in the hours. Mm -hmm. Somebody's a great guitarist because they put in the hours. Somebody's a world traveler, they put in the miles. They put the boots on the ground and they kept on walking. And all of us, when you look around you and you really pay attention, you see that the struggle is what makes you grow. And that's it. That that is that's the answer. Don't run away from pain. Lean into it. Mm. Go. What do you have to teach me? Anxiety, <laughs> doubt, and loneliness. Mm. You know. And then when you become comfortable with those things, them being around, they stop screaming at you so much. Mm. They're still there. They're never going to go away. But they're not your enemy. They're your teacher. Okay, that ends part one of two of my interview with Corey Hardiger. Check us out next week for part two. In the meantime, you can go to the Serve Conscious podcast to check out more free content at www.serveconscious.com. Also, please get on iTunes and give me a review so that I can be seen by everyone and take over the world. All right, thank you, and have a good one. Ciao.